All right, y'all, we are back for another episode and so excited to have another guest on the podcast, Molly Johnson. She is the autism consultant on Instagram, and we're going to be learning so much from her today. I'm particularly excited because she has a background in special education and then loves educating autism parents. We have such a similar mission. So one of the things that I want you to think about as you're going through this episode is have you ever wondered the best ways to use visual supports for your autistic child? Well, we are going to cover that in today's episode with Molly. As I mentioned, Molly has her master's in education and is a former autism teacher. She has now become the autism consultant teaching parents about visual supports, potty training, and behavior and coping. I love watching her social media myself and always love the short bite-sized pieces of information that she gives to parents. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental mindset coach specializing in autism. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. I'm the host of Evolve, the podcast where we have real conversations that are designed for autism parents just like you. Each week, we will discuss topics that directly impact your life, from providing psychoeducation about autism and neurodiversity to talking about your personal growth, well-being, and evolution as a parent, we dive into it all. Just keep in mind, nothing shared on this podcast is clinical advice, and you should consult with a medical or mental health provider if you need support. Now, let's get to chatting with Molly. Molly, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And yes, we met on Instagram and that's where I spend a lot of my time giving that bite-sized information and meeting so many parents and professionals. So I'm so glad that we connected and we were able to do this. And we're talking about visual supports, which you know from my Instagram, I love them. (laughs) Exactly. And I love even, you'll give tips on like how parents should physically put them together, which I think sometimes is the overwhelming part. Like, okay, great. I need them, but how do I even do this? One of your videos recently was literally like, what Velcro to use? So many tips and tricks that I've learned over the years where I'm like, no, don't do this. That's the complicated way. Let's make it easy on everybody because we all need like ease and simplicity because life can be chaotic. So if we can have something as simple as our Velcro be easier, I'm all in. (laughs) Absolutely. I love that. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you made that transition from being an autism teacher into this social media space? Absolutely. So like you said, I majored in special ed when I went to college and it was funny. First, my major was nursing and I had this grand plan to be a nurse and I hated it. I didn't want to do it. I wasn't looking forward to it. I was just doing it because I didn't know where I was supposed to be in life and what I was supposed to be doing. And one of my friends said, hey, I'm majoring in special ed. I work with autistic kids at this autism program. Why don't you come shadow me at work? Because I think you would be better fit for that than nursing. So I went and shadowed her at work. And I was like, I love this. The next day I went and changed my major to special ed. I went and begged for a job at this autism program and I became an autism teacher and I loved it. But what I found is that I would teach during the day. I would go home from school and I was very involved with the parents. We had each other's phone numbers. We would text back and forth when needed. But what I found is that the parents would be texting and emailing me in the evening for help at home saying, hey, Molly, we're working on this behavior. We're seeing this behavior at home. What should we do? Or, hey, Molly, we want to work on this skill. We want to work on potty training. What do we do? Where do we get started? So I realized, okay, I was almost working a double job because I was working during the day. And then I was going home and basically consulting these parents in the evening. And that's when I decided I had about 12 students at the time of this small group of parents. If they have these questions, I bet there are other parents out there looking for guidance and support on things like behaviors and coping and potty training as well. So I decided I'm going to start a podcast and an Instagram account. I'm just going to put advice out there and information out there of everything that I'm doing in the classroom and everything I've learned along the way. And if it helps one person, good job done. I'm helping somebody out. And it quickly became a thing. I saw so many parents out there needed help and advice and encouragement. And so now, yes, I'm the autism consultant online where I have online courses and I support parents. And the cool thing is when I was an autism teacher, I could impact 12 kids every year. And it had to be in my town that I lived. 
Now I, I can impact an unlimited amount of families. And I work with families from all over the world, which is the coolest thing. And then I get to meet wonderful people like you online where we get to collaborate because we need parents to know about each other. Like there are other people out there in this space wanting to support you. So here we are. Absolutely. And I think being in the field myself, what I find is parents have to piecemeal all this information together. And I think social media has been incredible in that sense, right? You can go and find someone who's going to walk you through everything. What I love too is you are talking broadly to parents, but then you have this special education background. And I think sometimes that, that bridge between what's happening at school and what's happening at home can be an area of challenge. Like how do we make it seamless? So I guess, do you have any suggestions? It sounds like the school you worked at sounds amazing, but it also sounds pretty unique, right? That you had this really strong working relationship with parents, they had your number, all of that. How would you encourage parents though to start collaborating with teachers and the IEP team and all of that. Yeah. And you said the perfect word collaborating because collaboration is key from day one. I always let my parents know we're on the same team. You and I we're hooking arms and we're on the same team and we're going to accomplish a goal together. I want to use you, the parent as my biggest resource because nobody knows the child like the parent, Mm -hmm. you know, and thinking about the support team, the IEP team through the years, That's going to change left and right. People are coming and going. Professionals are coming and going. That parent is the one constant person on that child support team forever. And so professionals just really see that parent as a resource. We can really realize that the more we work together, the more we put our heads together, the further we go with this child, with whatever they need to work on. So if your teacher is not reaching out in the beginning and wanting to collaborate and wanting to be a team. Maybe the parent needs to be the one to take the first step. I wish in every situation it was the teacher because I hate to put one more thing on the parent's plate, but really reach out to that teacher and let them know, hey, I'm here. Whatever question you have about my child, I'm here to answer, to help you. I see behaviors at home. I see skills that need to be worked on at home. So we can ping pong ideas back and forth to help each other out in both the school and home with these behaviors and skills. But just reaching out to that teacher or provider or whoever is on your team, your support team and saying, hey, I want to be on your team. I want to link arms. I want to be your resource. Ask me questions at any time and letting them know from the beginning, I want this communication to be a two-way street. I want to work together. I think about the parents that I worked with when I was in the classroom and it wouldn't have worked if we didn't collaborate. We wouldn't have made it that far with a child's progress if we didn't work together. Because like I said, the parent knows that child better than anybody else. So I'm calling that parent and I'm saying, Hey, will your child respond to X, Y, and Z? Okay, no. What about this? Instead, use each other as a way to collaborate and get further ahead with that child. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And that's something I talk a lot about is parents are the experts of their children. Yes, I'm an expert in autism. I'm an expert in child psychology and all of that. You're an expert in education. Your pediatrician is an expert in your child's like physical health and development and well-being. All of that is true, but you need to be empowered as the parent at the center of this that you are an expert. I do talk about, but it's interesting to think about in terms of school, it is a little tricky. I have episodes on this where I'm like, if you don't feel empowered as a parent, find a different provider, find one that truly values you. It does start to get a little bit more complicated with teachers and all of that. But even within the school system, there's ways you can advocate and be able to say, maybe this teacher isn't the best fit for our family. And a lot of times there's multiple teachers that do similar things and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think anytime you walk into a scenario where you're going into your child's support team, you're going maybe to an IEP meeting, maybe an appointment you have with someone, just giving yourself a little pep talk and letting yourself know as a reminder I add value to this situation I'm about to walk into. Like we just said, nobody knows the child like that parent and reminding yourself that 
you are a contributor to the team. You don't have to be the sole person providing answers and solutions just because you're a parent, but you are the one that also adds value. So don't discredit yourself walking in. Oh, that's so good. I add value. And I think for IEP meetings in particular, which can be really challenging, which if you're a parent, you're listening to this, you keep hearing us throw around the term IEP. This is a support plan for your child in the school that gives them accommodations and interventions and all of that. The tricky part is your child may have a medical diagnosis of autism. That doesn't always mean that they're going to qualify automatically for an educational diagnosis of autism. But I love this idea that even if you're hitting a little bit of resistance or frustration, reminding yourself that you do add value and you do need to speak up in these situations. Unfortunately, I've heard a lot of stories of parents signing IEPs being like, I didn't agree with it. You don't have to sign it, right? It's an iterative process. So I just, I love that so, so much. Yeah. And we were talking about Instagram and social media earlier to educate parents and letting them know little bite-sized pieces of information. And there's so many different accounts that talk about the IEP process, which is wonderful. Parents can learn how to truly advocate for themselves. So I know it sounds silly sometimes go to social media to find information, but Truly, there are some gems out there that you can be following and learning from. So don't be afraid to poke around online and see what others are trying to teach you about the process. I know, for example, Catherine Witcher, she trains teachers and parents how to be an IEP advocate. And I was a teacher who wrote IEPs, but I still learned so much from her account. So go search for what you're looking for information on. It's out there. Yeah. And I'd say even if you feel like you have the best IEP team in the world, I believe we all learn and grow. Like you were just saying, like I did this and I still learn so much. And so that's another side of it is even if you're like, this is the best collaboration ever, still educating yourself and bringing that information to right. your child's teacher and being like, hey, I learned about this. What do you think about that? Because magical things can really happen when we have this collaboration modes. Yeah, and perfect example that you just gave with how to collaborate. Hey, I just heard this, what do you think about it? Telling somebody what you think the good idea is and asking their input on it. That is a great way to present a new strategy or idea to your team. So I just wanted to throw that out there if any parent needed that as an example. Yeah. Hey, tell us that how long have you been doing this, the Instagram side of things? Oh goodness. Three-ish years. Okay. Three years. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot has happened in three years. I mean, it's just crazy. In the beginning, like I said, I just kind of started it because I thought, oh, maybe someone will hear the advice and it'll help them at home. And no, I quickly learned that there are a lot of parents out there all over the world who are on social media saying, help, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? So that's kind of what my platform is there for, to answer those very specific, hey, what do I do about this? And in the beginning, I just talked about behaviors and visual supports and skill development, but in a vague kind of way. And I quickly learned and realized from the parents in my online community that Potty training is the number one skill that parents are struggling with. So right now, potty training is a big topic in my community and something that I can't stop talking about if you watch my Instagram, because so many parents are saying, help with this. And they see this struggle and they hear these horror stories about potty training an autistic child. And they think it's not possible and they want the right plan in place to work together and collaborate with their team. So they know they're doing it right the first time. So it's just crazy and really cool. Like what's come out of social media and the people that I've met, just wonderful parents that I've had the honor of working with. Yeah. Love that. Okay. Actually let's go into potty training really sure. quickly. What would you say if a parent is struggling right now, they feel lost, they're like, could this be the right thing for me? I am curious about your approach because there's so many different approaches right. to potty training. How would you describe your approach to them to know if they would be a good fit for your course? Yeah, so I do recommend that kids are at least two years old before they start. And I tell parents, if you're wondering, is this the right thing for my child to start learning? Should we work on this? I tell parents to 
look for your child's ability to follow very, very simple one-step directions because that's what potty training is. It is a series of very simple one-step directions. And if they don't have that, let's hold off a little bit and maybe work on that skill at home before you dive in to a skill that has many one-step directions. You also can look for the child's ability to imitate mom or dad, imitate somebody they're very comfortable with, somebody they're, they're around a lot of the time. Because again, we know kids learn through model and imitation, and we're going to use that approach, model and imitation, to teach the potty training process. So if your child doesn't fall in that category, if they're not two years old and they can't follow simple one-step directions, they're not quite imitating anything yet, maybe hold off, wait till they're the right age and they're doing some of those things, and then start. But it's funny, how do you describe your approach? I yeah. need a better answer for this. <laughs> I don't know that I have like a word to describe my approach, but I think if I were to choose one word to describe it, I would say natural. It's as natural as possible. We want going to the bathroom to be natural. Relieving ourselves is something the body does naturally. So when we teach a child to transition from the diapers to the toilet, it should be natural. We shouldn't be forcing. We shouldn't be adding any element of discomfort. We need to take care of anxiety. There's a lot that goes into it. The body's like a machine. Everything just works and everything functions a certain way. There's no randomness to the way the body works. And I think that your potty training approach needs to be the same way because it all goes back to the body and how the body functions. And if you look on my social media, on my Instagram, one of the things that I do not recommend for potty training is picking random time intervals. There's a popular approach where everybody sits their child on the toilet every 10 minutes. And that's random. We just found a random time interval, pulled that 10 minutes out of thin air with nothing to back it up, no reasoning. And now we're sitting a child on the toilet every 10 minutes and just hoping for the best. We're guessing with our approach. We have a random approach. And when you have random strategies and approaches, expect random results right. because that's going to happen. So I do not recommend that. Like I said, the body naturally functions. We all have our own schedule for going to the bathroom. It's pretty much the same from day to day, as long as our routine is the same. My bladder isn't going to hold it. This is extreme, but my bladder isn't going to hold it in three hour intervals today. And then tomorrow I'm only going to hold it for 30 minutes. Our bladder has a certain limit. We need to find that work that into our schedule, because like I said, we want it to be natural. We want the body to do what it's already doing as we transition to the toilet. I love it. I have a few comments on it. One, the natural piece, so, so important too, because the 10 minutes, my brain goes to, that's just not feasible either for parents, right? There's already so much you're trying to do. And then- yeah potty training ends up feeling very invasive. And if it feels invasive, then it's hard to maintain it. Expect the pushback. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't fit into your lifestyle either. Exactly. Exactly. And potty training shouldn't be something that you want to rip your hair out over. It shouldn't be something that you're dreading. And what happens, because I get a lot of parents that come to me to work on potty training and they've attempted potty training before and they followed this method that they come to me and say, you're right. I saw your reel about not doing this and you're right. We did this and we hated it. Day two, we all threw in the towel because we couldn't do it anymore. And the reason for that is number one, it's now a chore going every 10 minutes. So we're stopping what we're doing six times an hour to go set this child on the toilet and try to encourage them to get something out, to relieve themselves. And so mom and dad end up thinking it's a chore because they have to stop what they're doing and do this. The child is constantly transitioning away from what they were doing. So they're annoyed. It's a lot of transitions, like I just said, and we know a lot of transitions is usually not very good for an autistic child who thrives on structure and routine. And then think about yourself. If I took you to the bathroom six times in an hour, could you pee all six times? I no. literally, before you <laughs> said that, I was thinking there's no natural like consequence or natural reward that comes from going to the bathroom six times an hour. So it's going to be hard to maintain that too. Yeah. And so maybe let's say we might in an hour, all of us might get one P 
pee in the potty if we go six times because of how big our bladders are. And so if we look at that ratio, so we're successful one time, but we're unsuccessful five times. Guess what? After a few hours where I'm doing this same cycle over and over and I'm unsuccessful five times and only successful one, I'm not motivated. I've lost my motivation because I feel like a failure. I'm not accomplishing what I'm supposed to on the toilet. And when we lose that motivation, guess what? We all want to throw in a towel. If I'm learning any new skill and I'm failing over and over way more than I'm succeeding, guess what? Day two, I'm like, done. This is not for me. So we really have to take that into consideration as well. And we want every time we sit the child on the toilet to be purposeful, to be meaningful we're not sitting them on the toilet randomly. We want them to pee and poop. So that's the goal. We're not doing so hot if we're unsuccessful five times and only successful once. So I'm very against it. And I'm very for finding your child's natural schedule. Yeah. I think this makes so much sense. And what's even just interesting, because I wanted to make a comment about the modeling and imitation piece, so incredibly important, but even like kids learn through natural reinforcers. And so the more that in that natural reinforcer, I don't know exactly where you stand on this, but it's interesting because there has been some controversy in the field about things like ABA and using food rewards and all of that. And sometimes we forget that like the actual act we're trying to get is the reward. Peeing on the potty with a yay, that's exciting, right? Right. And again, going back to the actual human body, think about if you have a full bladder, you go to the bathroom, guess what? You feel good. You Mm -hmm. feel a sense of relief. We all feel good. Whether it's number one or number two, we all feel good after we go. It feels better. And so that's a little bit of the natural reward as well. We all know what that full bladder feels like. Your child no longer feels that full bladder feeling once they pee, or they no longer feel that bloated feeling in their tummy once they poop. So that's a natural reward as well. And that's what why we want to find your child's natural schedule, because we want to make sure we're timing it right to where, okay, we know this bladder's full and we want them to feel that relief. And we want to make it a pattern and we want them to realize that pattern, full bladder, pee, relief. Yep. It's all a pattern and it's all about helping the child learn that pattern. Yeah. And again, it's so naturalistic too, because they get the relief and then the parent is automatically excited too. And they look at it and they talk about it and all of that. And I just think that that is so, so important. I do want to touch on the, you did talk about the rewards a little bit and ABA and where I stand on that. And I just want to say that A lot of people won't like my answer on this, but I honestly, I don't have a huge stance on this. My stance is you do what works for your family. If ABA is working for your family and it's great, awesome. I'm so happy for you. Some families, that's the only option they have. Some families, they live in an area where daycare won't take them and ABA is their only option. Other families have other options out there and they can put their child in daycare or other forms of therapy. You have to do what works for your child, your circumstance, and your family. And I don't think somebody on the internet with an Instagram account who is not raising your child has the say to tell you if a therapy is right or wrong. That's not my place to tell you. That is your decision to make. And I support you with whatever decision you make for your family. So, so good. I love that. And I brought it up because a lot of times, too, we hear like, food rewards for potty training and all of that. And the controversy is around rewards, but we have rewards in every element of our lives that naturally occur. And what you said is very similar to my answer of like how I stand in terms of ABA. And it comes back to you are the expert of your child. And you are the one, you're the one that knows all your resources, your capacity. Family capacity is a huge piece in this too that is often forgotten. What's going to fit best into your life? Also, what your child's going to respond to. And also then your voice has value. You have value. I love that when you're trying to make decisions as well for what is best for your child. Right, right. You know? 
And going back to rewards, I'm not against rewards at all. I'm very reward driven. I was just at a store, like a little boutique dog store where I buy like some little dog treats and my dogs get haircuts there and stuff. And they have the card punch. Every time you spend X amount of dollars, they'll punch the card and then you get a reward. I'm like, heck yes. I just got, yes, I just got it. I'm reward driven. I am totally okay with rewards being used, but again, you have to be okay with what the reward is. Now, what I am against when it comes to rewards and the potty training process is you have to be careful about what you're rewarding because sometimes people reward the wrong skill. So I see it all the time where the child sits on the toilet, they get their reward immediately. Okay. So I'm not totally into that because we're sort of teaching the skill, but not really. What we're looking for is that child peeing and pooping in the toilet. And so that's what I recommend rewarding instead of just sitting because I see so many times when parents come to me in my potty training course and they tell me, okay, I'm rewarding them for sitting on the toilet and now it's been two weeks and they haven't peed or pooped. And I'm like, yes, because you rewarded the wrong thing. We Now we have to backtrack a little bit. So just be mindful about how you're implementing the reward, but I'm totally for it. If you're for it as a parent, I'm right behind you and supporting you with that decision. Absolutely. Yeah. I think episode eight, I talked about the ABCs of behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so really dove into like rewards and just ca- consequences and consequences, yeah. not as like a bad word, right? Just right. how just we're reinforcing. What, yeah. What naturally happens. Yeah. Exactly. And so if you're rewarding your child for sitting on the potty, you're making it more likely that they will sit on the potty, which is great. But if you're not rewarding the right thing, then you're actually making it less likely that all those attached things happen. And so they're going to be hyper-focused and it's going to be really confusing for your child too, because they're going to be like, but I'm doing what you want me to do. And you're going... No, no, you're not. You know, I see it all the time. The child gets so happy because they just sat on the toilet and they're like, I did what I'm supposed to do. Give me my reward. And the parents give it and they're like, okay, you have your reward, but now do something else. Well, the kid's thinking, no, I already have my reward. I'm hopping off the toilet and going off with my iPad or my gummies or whatever the reward is, you know? So just be mindful about how you're actually implementing the reward. But my stance is, Absolutely. If that's what you want to do, go for it. I'm all for it. Yeah. And then one more comment I had before we transition off this topic was you had mentioned kind of some of those precursors to potty training, you know, following simple one-step directions, as well as basic imitation. If you're listening to this and you're like, my child doesn't do that, those are things that absolutely can be worked on and supported. Those are skills in and of themselves. So I don't want you to hear that and be like, oh gosh, I'm not going to get to potty training. I almost want you to think about it like those are the precursor skills. One of my favorite books personally is called An Early Start for Your Young Child with Autism. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's based on the Early Start Denver model. and Which I it's, have heard of. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's an amazing book. It breaks it down chapter by chapter on how to work and support your child. There's an entire chapter on imitation, for example. Oh, and so that could be a great start with the the end goal in mind, like you are working towards potty training. So it's not a fail that if your child's not there yet. Yeah, yeah. And not there yet. The key word is yet. And I just had a mom message me, I think it was last week, and she had said, my kid's five. I'm behind. I don't know if it's too late to start potty training. I'm embarrassed. And I'm like, you're not you're not late to the game. You're just starting at a different time. You're just not there yet. But if we don't have those prerequisite skills, that child's going to really struggle through the potty training process. And I, like I said, I have a course for potty training. And the reason that I tell parents this is because I don't specifically teach how to teach a kid to imitate in my course. I expect that to be a prerequisite. And I'll tell parents too, when they message me and they're like, Hey, this is what my child's doing, blah, 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 blah. Are they ready for your course? I'll tell them, nope, go back home, go back and work on imitation and following those one-step directions. You're not quite there yet. Give it a few months to work on that and then come to me and ask me because it's really hard to learn without those prerequisite skills. Yeah. And that'd be a great book then to give them as a resource of like, 
your child's not ready, but this book is going to teach you exactly how to teach your child simple one-step directions as well as imitation and all of that. And it, the core of it is, it's interesting of this conversation about rewards and just natural consequences and all of that. It's a very naturalistic intervention, but the thought is that basically a lot of times we're missing children's communication bids. And so then we're not reinforcing those. And so then they stop using them as frequently. And so it really helps you also to tune in to what your child is attempting to do. And I think is really, really amazing in that way. And speaking of parents tuning in to their kids, I think that's one of the benefits for me as a consultant working with parents, getting joy from seeing a parent make a connection and realizing they're seeing their child in a new light. And it's just really cool to see parents make those connections too, once they know to start looking for certain things or working on certain things. So yes, absolutely. But will you say that book title one more time? An Early Start for Your Young Child with Autism. It's by Jerry Dawson and Sally Rogers and Lori Vismara. So I love it. That's the beauty of following podcasts and following professionals on social media as you learn about other resources as well. So that sounds like a great resource for parents to go check out at the library and read to learn how do we get to the point where we are ready to potty train. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I like I believe in this book so much that it's something that for diagnostic assessments, it's in every single report. Like this isn't just me throwing a book out. This is something I've integrated into my practice and I actually do early intervention work. We base it off this book because I think it's so gifted in how it speaks to parents. It was designed for parents. It wasn't designed for clinicians or teachers. And it does a really, really nice job of just breaking down the steps. And you realize through all of it that you are capable of teaching your child all of this. It's just sometimes we don't think about what imitation exactly is, for example, or how you teach play, all of that. So there's so many just basic steps that it teaches and I love. Let's transition now to talking about visual supports. Why don't you just talk a little bit first for people that aren't familiar with using visual supports, why do you think that they're effective and what do they really help to do? Yeah, most autistic kids have a strength in visual processing. And this simply means that they're going to understand better what they see rather than what they hear. So once we know that, we can start implementing those and we'll start improving comprehension because when we're giving directions or when we're communicating with these kids, we want them to comprehend what message we're trying to get across to them. So why not present it in a way that is easier for them to process and understand? And one of the things I love about visual supports is here you and I are talking. Our words disappear immediately. Visual supports, they're there to stay as long as that child needs for that processing time. And I'm a very quick talker. I get excited about things. I talk fast. My words are leaving my mouth so fast and there's nothing for somebody to reflect back on to remind themselves about something that I said or if they skip something or miss something. Maybe they just need a little bit more time processing and understanding what I'm saying, but I'm go, go, go guess what? Those visual supports, those are there to stay for that child. That's what I really like because it's all about processing of information. I don't know if you've heard about executive functioning skills, but visual supports help with executive functioning. And I like to tell parents when I describe what this is, executive functioning skills are a fancy word for like brain management skills. Things like planning things out, planning your day out, organizing information in your mind, task initiation, starting the thing that you need to do, moving on to the next task in the right order. And what we know about neurodivergent individuals is that a lot of times they struggle with those types of skills, those executive functioning skills. And the visual supports They support those skills. They help the child. And a lot of times what I hear from parents are things like, ooh, these visual supports look great, but I don't want my kid to become dependent on that. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to need that forever. And I tell them every time, no, they help them be more successful and not need you. They can rely on the support, but not need a physical human there to help. 
they're so much more independent if they're using a visual support versus an adult. And think about ourselves. We use added supports all day long throughout our day. Just today, I have used my alarm clock to wake up. I've used Google Calendar. I've texted people. I've made a grocery list to go grocery shopping this evening with my husband. We use added supports every single day. And I can tell you right now, if somebody took those supports away from me, I wouldn't wake up on time. I wouldn't have arrived to this meeting. I would go to the grocery and spend $200 more than I needed to because I'd be shopping aimlessly. So these added supports are helping me be more successful at these tasks, just like they're going to help your child be more successful at the tasks that you want them to complete. So if you're on the fence and you're worried that it's going to be great in the beginning, but be something that is harmful later on, that is not the case. And it's actually a huge misconception. Oh, that's so good. I love the analogy to us as adults. And we also know from research that these can help to promote communication, like both expressive and receptive. So understanding things that we see broadly that autistic children do have more delayed receptive language. And then also sometimes that processing time, right? That they then can take the time to look at it gets more responsiveness, which reduces frustration as well. But there's been like so, so much research on it that it actually helps to expedite communication versus actually hold your child back. Absolutely. And speaking of communication, when we build these visual supports, we talked about Velcro earlier. And just to fill everybody in, the Velcro that we were referring to is for the visual supports. Why? Because we do want them to be interactive. We want the kid involved and we want the kid to communicate through them if they have no other form of communication. Even if they do have another form of communication, they can still communicate and interact with us when they engage with these visual supports. So yes, communication is a huge piece to this. And I personally, I love the visual schedules and that's where I tell parents, let that be your starting point, a visual schedule. And don't be surprised though, when your child wants to communicate something with you and they run to their visual schedule, they pull off a Velcroed picture card and they bring it to you as a form of communication because your child will start putting that together too. They'll understand that this is a way to interact, to go back and forth with you. And it's really, really cool once a child understands that. It's a great feeling. Absolutely. And then on the other side is older kids. It works beautifully too. I recommend visual supports all the time with my clients that are like eight through 12 years old because it helps them to be more independent. Or we know that ADHD co-occurs with autism quite frequently, which is adding to executive functioning deficits and being able to have that thing that you go back to, to keep you on schedule of what steps am I doing right now to take a shower or to get ready for bed, all of that. So it's not even like just for young kids as a way to communicate. There's so many different uses. So curious, you said a visual schedule is where you often like to start. What other areas would you say you find the best starting place or like most beneficial as a kickoff point? Well, so I'll go into visual schedules a little bit with an example. And then also I like to take the most difficult parts of your day or the most chaotic parts of your day and figuring out how we can make that easier on everyone. So with the visual schedule, let's say that mornings before school at home, they're rush, rush, rush. Everybody's running around like chickens with their head cut off and trying to get ready. And you're trying to get all your kids out the door and You find that your child who has autism, you're having to follow them around the house basically to complete each step of the morning routine. Okay, let's sit down at the table to eat breakfast. Okay, let's go to the bathroom and brush your teeth. Okay, time to go to the bathroom. Let's go to the bedroom and get dressed. What if we had a visual support that could swap you out for the visual support and we can help that child be independent? in their morning routine. What if we had a morning routine visual schedule where the child had that prompt, these visual supports are prompts, they're reminders, and they keep all of the information organized. They keep it all in order. And what I love is that I talked about them being interactive. 
if you look on my Instagram account, you'll see that the visual schedules that I show, they're interactive where you can move them from there is a to-do column to an all-done column. And it's kind of like you and I have a to-do list. Feels good to scratch something off. Like, ooh, we accomplished that. On to the next. I visually see I have fewer things to do. I'm getting close to the finish line. It feels good. So a similar concept should be done with the visual schedule where the child can kind of check off what they've done to keep them on track and keep them motivated. This is going to help them complete also those non-preferred activities. So let's say that your child hates brushing their teeth and it's horrible every single morning. Well, maybe after brushing their teeth, maybe there's more of a preferred activity afterwards. And we're able to visually show this child. Remember, they comprehend it easier when it's visual. We are able to visually show them that, hey, bud, this ends eventually. This doesn't last forever. You get to move on to something that's more enjoyable. And going back to executive functioning skills, a lot of kids that struggle with these skills, they get really kind of time blind and stuck in this one activity and they truly think they're there forever. And so when we can show them, mm -mm, we get to move on and we get to move on to something more preferable, that helps them complete those non-preferred activities but those activities that have to be done. I also like working with visuals to, like I said, make those chaotic times of the day not so chaotic, make them more manageable for the child. Like if giving a bath every night, if that is just no fun for anyone, how could we incorporate a visual support to support this child and help them through it? Because we don't want them to hate bath time. We want it to be manageable. We want them to know they're moving on. We want them to enjoy it. So maybe we're using a visual schedule, but also maybe we're using something like a task analysis where it just simply, it's very similar actually to a visual schedule, but it's just with a skill. So we take the skill of taking a bath and we break it down in order, step-by-step, step, small step-by-step step, that is a visual along with each step. So first we run our bath, we take off our clothes, we get in the bath, we wash our hair, we wash our body, we rinse off, we dry off, we put our clothes on. So having that in order in picture form, I have had so many parents that do this and they're like, oh my gosh, for the first time ever, my child went through every single step and would point out what's next. And it was doable for all of us. And it wasn't tears and crying. And when we can make something visual and manageable and fun and interactive, that's when we start seeing kids make progress in different skills and other areas. So those are my two areas. First, I recommend the visual schedule and then look at what's chaotic in my day. What's really the struggle in my day? How can I implement a visual with that? Yeah, and I think a lot of times parents, when they have chaotic aspect of the day or they're getting a lot of resistance, think then it's a behavioral thing of like, my child is being oppositional, my child's being defiant. I hear this all the time. A lot of times, I would say more often than not, that is not actually the case. Probably what's happening is these steps might seem simple to you because they're a routine, but also they're probably falling out of your child's memory where they run the bath and then all of a sudden they're sitting, they find a piece of paper on the floor and are crumpling it up or something distracts them or they're playing with the button on their pants when they should yep. be getting undressed. And then when they come back to being like, what was I doing? We have this as adults all the time. Like, what was I doing? And we also have to keep in mind that any child's brain isn't fully developed brain development wise like our brains are. They don't have a prefrontal cortex like ours are where they're able to really have all these kind of nuanced approaches and reasoning and all of that. And so these, these type of things really can be so incredibly supportive and also then helping them to actually learn the skills. I think we talked about this, but parents being hesitant, I think they're so afraid that then it's like, well, this is the easy way out. It's like, no, we're actually making it so they understand what is fully going on and can start to build the routine and skill set. So eventually they might not need 
that visual support for bath time anymore because it's become a routine that they don't need to think right. about. It's more automatic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And one more kind of benefit to add to things like the visual schedule is that we have to remember anxiety is a big part of autism. It's a big part of why your child might engage in refusal behaviors or why your child is engaging in multiple challenging behaviors because that anxiety piece. And what we do with something like the visual schedule is we are making their day, their routine, their activities more predictable, meaning they know what to expect. Yep. They see their expectations for the morning on this morning visual schedule. And so it's no surprise when you tell this child, okay, it's time to move on to brushing our teeth. It's now not a surprise like it was before. The child has seen it on their visual schedule, so they know it's coming. And when we're all like this, when we know something's coming, it's easier to engage in it. It's easier to participate. And when we do that, when we provide a lot of predictability, we see anxiety lower. And a lot of times as a result of that, we see behaviors lower, which that child can enjoy their morning and enjoy their day when their anxiety starts melting away. That's what we want. Right. And as a parent, then your anxiety is going to also start to lower. It's such this, this family cycle when this is literally inserting something like a visual support in this cycle can be the thing that helps to shift so, so much because everything is highly, highly related. The other thing I would add to this is I talk a lot about is you and your child have a common language then. You both are speaking the same language. It's not like one person speaking French and the other is speaking Spanish because that's a lot of times where some of this frustration comes from is just complete misunderstanding. And it's like, okay, you're both speaking that same language together. Absolutely. It can take away some of that disconnect piece there. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Any common mistakes that you see with visual supports? Yes. So one big one that I see, the, probably the most common is not actually teaching how to use and engage with the visual support. You yes. know, a lot of times parents will make it, they'll print and laminate, add the Velcro and just kind of stick it on the wall or stick it in front of the child and expect the child to know what to do with it. No, this is a foreign thing to the kid. We have to slowly introduce it and teach it. And so I talked about model and imitation earlier. And guess what? That's how I want you introducing it to your child. I want you, the parent, to be the one to interact with it for the first few days. I don't want your child moving the pieces. I don't want your child interacting with it. I want them to see the parent doing it for the first maybe two or three days because I want them to see it for the first time used correctly because a lot of times, and I think this is for all of us. I don't think it's just for autistic kids, but a lot of times the first time we interact with something that way is kind of burned into our brain. So now every time we approach this new thing, we think of that first interaction. And if the child interacts with it the wrong way, because remember it's new, so they're probably going to interact with it the wrong way. If they haven't been taught that way, it's going to keep coming up in their brain every time they come in contact with it. So if we can problem solve from the very beginning and take that issue off the table from the get-go and the parent engages with it and the parent shows them how to use it and the parent interacts with it correctly, they're seeing the correct model from the get-go and that's what we want. So not teaching it is one common mistake. Another mistake it sounds so funny to me sometimes, but it happens all the time because life gets busy. But a, a mistake that I see is that parents put them up in their house and then they never do anything with them. They're just there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, no, but you actually have to use them. Like they're going to make your day easier. They're going to make those complicated and chaotic times of your day so much easier. So if you're going through the trouble to make them, use them. Don't forget that they're there. Don't forget that it's up on your refrigerator or the wall of your playroom. Get it involved with your daily routine. Make it a new norm so we can see those benefits. So we can see the communication and the anxiety go away and the independence develop. They have to be used on a regular basis. And then I guess one more thing to add is don't overcomplicate it. It's not complicated. And if we overcomplicate something, it's probably going to be presented 
in a complicated way to that child. And when something's complicated, it's harder to get and understand and interact with. So if you don't have the ability to make visual supports, guess what? We all have our cell phones with us at all time. Use that to your advantage. If you want to make a little visual schedule on your phone in your photo album, do that. Let's say we're going to the grocery store, we're going to Chick-fil-A, and then we're coming back home. So maybe what I'll do is I'll Google my grocery store down the street is Publix. So I'll Google it, screenshot a picture. I'll Google the Chick-fil-A down the street, screenshot a picture. I have a picture of my house and my photo album, screenshot that so it's in the right order. And I slide through the pictures. I swipe through them to show the child, hey, bud, first we're going to Publix, swipe, then we're going to Chick-fil-A, swipe, and then we're coming back home. So now that child that really struggled with outings and going to the grocery store, and I didn't know why before, maybe it was because transitions are hard and they didn't know when they would be returning home. They didn't know if they're going to be out all day. Is this going to be an eight hour thing? My home is my comfort spot. I just showed the child that, hey, Publix, Chick-fil-A, home, we're going to be home in no time. And I'm going to take that anxiety down for that child. So don't overcomplicate it. Use what you already have in front of you, which is your technology, your phone in your back pocket. So good. Yeah. The thing that I would add to this, which is so related to everything you're saying too, is letting go of the expectation. I think a lot of times parents go into this thinking it's going to be some quick fix and mm-hmm. it's not. It takes a little bit of time to yeah. introduce, like showing them and then developing the new routine. And I think sometimes why we see they're created and then fall off is it, it can be linked to expectation of, well, it didn't work. And it's like, it just is going to take a little bit longer. So it's like that slow down to speed up. Your mm-hmm. child will get it, but it's going to take consistency of introducing it and how long that is for your child is going to be dependent on your child but stay the course i always say you got to give it a couple weeks to really start to evaluate is this working or not and if it's not like you're saying it's probably overcomplicated. like if you feel overwhelmed by all the visual supports too then your child probably feels overwhelmed so maybe just introducing one at a time as well Absolutely. And I do recommend one at a time. And that's why I tell parents, make that visual schedule your starting point. Don't introduce anything else until you start making that the new norm. And it's super easy on everyone in the house. And if you're having trouble with your child getting engaged and using these new supports, you can tweak them along the way. There's not a one size fits all approach for how to use something like a visual schedule. So in the beginning of a child really wanting nothing to do with their visual schedule, not interacting with it, not following it, I might change it. And I might start out the schedule being something like non-preferred activity, preferred activity, non-preferred, preferred, non-preferred, preferred, because I want it to be manageable for them. I want them to see that, yes, we are engaging in activities that you enjoy. There will be some enjoyment After doing something, maybe you dislike like brushing your teeth, something better is coming, but we can tweak it for what's going on as a response to your child. We can tweak it based on your child's response and what they need and then slowly fade out. We we of course can't do like brush teeth, iPad, get dressed for school, iPad. That's probably not realistic for a lot of families because we can't be on the iPad 24 seven, but you can get to a point where you can start like that and then fade out those more preferred activities to have more of the non-preferred but necessary activities there before they get the payout or the preferred activity. Yeah. I don't think it's set in stone. I was even thinking during bath time when you were going through that example, right? It might be like run the water, take off clothes, get in the bath, wash your hair play with bubbles, right? Or play with toys. Then it's wash your body. It might be part of that activity too. Like this can be used, like you can intersperse some fun things in between, which are rewarding the progression of being able to follow this and they're working towards it and all of that. I also realize the irony of all of this is this is a podcast episode and we're talking about visual supports. So what I think we'll do if you're up for it, Molly, is maybe we can find a few examples and we'll link those in the show notes so parents can actually see because I think seeing it will help it click. 
Oh, 100%. We all kind of learn that way a little bit to a certain extent that we have to see something be done to know exactly and feel confident and comfortable enough to actually do it ourselves. So yes, we will link something up for you all to see an example of what exactly we're talking about when we say visual supports. Because if you've never heard it before, you're like, what on earth is this foreign tool they're talking about? But a lot of parents, you might be listening to this podcast and you might be thinking, what? I know my son or daughter uses visual supports at school. I know my son or daughter uses visual supports at occupational therapy. So they're using those for a reason. Those team members that you have on your support team, they're implementing those visual supports for a reason. And there is no reason why we can't integrate them into your home routine to make things easier on both you and your child at home too. And that consistency across environments can be incredibly helpful because then it becomes routine outside of the household as well. One last idea I've been thinking of this whole episode is to like around like mealtimes. I see a lot of tantrums around mealtimes and sometimes it's like frustration of what food it is. And sometimes it can even be like they can't get access to the food or you don't want them to have like free reign over things. But can you give them like pictures of different food and giving them options. I love visual supports for options a lot of times too, because then as the parent, you still have some control, but then it feels like it's giving your child some autonomy and independence and like they're in control at the same place. Absolutely. And so this is called controlled choices where we present your child with choices that they can make a choice And they feel like they have a sense of power and control and they're the ones in charge. And it feels good when we all make our own choice and we can actually follow through and do that choice. But really, we chose the original choices. So don't hear this and think, oh, I don't want my child deciding everything and ruling the day and me not being the leader. No, you're still choosing the choices. It's still up to you. They are just now getting this opportunity to feel empowered and feel that sense of control. And what we have to remember is these kids are watching us all day long. Us adults, we make thousands of choices every single day in front of this child. And they see that they see it. They want it. They want what we have. And so when we can give some of that power and control back to them, feels good. It feels really good to that child. And you're going to oftentimes see a reduction in challenging behaviors or refusal types of behaviors, because like I said, that feels good. And they just want to do what they see you do all day. Yeah. It's like, you want them to wear a shirt. So you say, do you want a red shirt or a blue shirt? You're still getting what you want. You want them to wear a shirt. They're getting to choose the color of that shirt. Exactly. Perfect example. So all day long, You can be incorporating choices into their day to help them engage or complete those things that need to be done that there's a lot of pushback on. Put the ball back in their court. Let them have a say. Absolutely. All right. I think we could continue talking like forever, but we probably (laughs) should wrap this up. At the end, we're going to share about how they can gain access to you and your courses. But anything else you want to make sure we say before we wrap this up? We covered a lot and we did. it was funny in the very beginning when we were going on and on about potty training, I was thinking this is not what the podcast is supposed to be about, but I appreciate you letting the conversation flow. And sometimes I'm a talker and I go off in different directions. So it's been great, but I think we covered a lot. If you do have questions, I try my best to answer DMs on social media, but Also, I want you to walk away from this and feel confident about implementing something new or feel confident about where you're at and realizing what I told you earlier at the very beginning of this, you add value. You're the expert. You are the parent. Nobody knows your child like you do. Nobody will be on that support team longer than you will be. So show up to those meetings and those conferences with confidence and know that you contribute value. You are the most valuable player on that team. Yes. So, so good. And so important. So tell me a little bit, then we talked about your potty training course, but what do you have right now? We'll link your Instagram in the show notes, but what else is going on in your world right now? Yeah. So I have two courses. One is a behavior and coping online course. And the other one, of course, like we talked about is my potty training online course. And 
what I love about my courses is these are not just videos that you're getting and you're on your own. No way. One of my favorite things back from being an autism teacher is collaborating with parents. So when you purchase a course, we are talking back and forth for three months. You're not on your own. I'm with you every step of the way. And that's the great thing about working with parents all over the world. Time zone doesn't matter. We don't need to book a conference on our calendars where our time zones match up. You send me a message. I send you a message back when it makes sense for both of our schedules. And we get a lot accomplished in three months. And my course members also have the ability to book a Zoom call, like a conference call with me as well. But unfortunately, I've had to limit it to just course members because my calendar just got so full with my course members wanting to book a call with me and collaborate. So that's the way that I work with parents right now. And like you said, Instagram, yes, if you just type in the autism consultant on your Instagram, there I am. And then I also have a podcast where I help with skills and behavior and coping and lots of great things out there that I help parents with for free. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for all your insights and value today. This was so wonderful and I think was such an important topic. So glad we could connect and do this. Absolutely. This was great. And I, I hope it added value to parent situations at home. If you find yourself listening to these episodes and finding value, come join the Evolve Facebook group. Each week I record podcast episodes live in that community and host a Q&A after each episode. You get access to engage with me, plus you can connect with other like-minded autism parents. It is a community designed for you to feel seen, heard, and supported as a parent of an autistic child and introduces you to my whole family approach. The group is linked in the show notes. I will be back next week with another real conversation about all things autism and your family life. Be sure to hit the plus or follow button in the podcast platform that you are listening to right now. This will notify you when the next episode is live. Catch you all later.